Academy Podcast, Episode 20, A Conversation with Stephanie Fretwell-Hill. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Welcome, Stephanie. Hi. I'm glad <laughs> to be here. So, Stephanie, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I have been working in the children's book publishing industry for a little over 10 years. I started out at Walker Books in the UK in 2004, I think, um, when I sold foreign language rights, which was a great job. I got to travel all over the world and um, I worked with some really amazing people. And I I did that for about seven years. That job was um, after the sort of creative part of the bookmaking was finished. Then I would take the finished books and I would get to know editors in different countries and try to convince them to publish what we were working on at Walker. And then, so I started to wish that I was more creatively involved with making the books. And so eventually I moved back to the U.S. and I got a job as an editor at Peachtree Publishers, um, where I was for about four years. And that was a really great experience, a great learning ground, because I got to work with all different types of books. And then more recently, I decided to become an agent and I joined Red Fox Literary. So I've been doing that about a year and a half. And that coincided with becoming a mom for the first time. It was kind of time for me to figure out how I was going to make all my publishing experience balance out with my personal life and how I was going to make it all work together. Uh, So that's what I've been up to for the past 10 years. I live in Atlanta, which is where I grew up. But obviously, I lived in various places, including the UK for a long time. My husband is English. And so when we moved back to the States, it was actually his first time moving to the US. So that's been kind of an adventure to live here. That's quite a with, change. With, you know, seeing, seeing it through his eyes, I guess. I was talking with an editor at Lynch today about the challenges of becoming a mom and maintaining your career and moving forward and getting promoted and all of those things. And Our conclusion was that publishing is a usually good industry for that. But of course, it's never easy to fit everything in, even if you don't have kids, even if you don't have a husband. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think especially children's publishing is really dominated by women. And so in some ways, you would think it's really easy to not easy, but you would think that the infrastructure almost is there for for balancing family and career. But I think it's hard. I think it's hard no matter who you work for or what your circumstances are. It's just, um, it's a really big bombshell to bring a kid into your life and then suddenly figure out how you're going to carry on. How are you going to put all of your, you know, put the right amount of energy into the different baskets of your life? You know, it's tricky. It's a work in progress. For me, I was lucky that I was in a position to make that kind of a decision to say, oh, okay, there's kind of an alternative to me going into an office every day and all, all the different implications that that has when you have a baby at home. And so instead, I've been working from home and managing both, <laughs> which is kind of a crazy thing to do in some ways. I feel like I don't have real like predictable working hours anymore. Like I just I'm kind of always working and I'm kind of always not working. So if something comes up, if I need to go do something, I go and do it. But then there's never a time of day where I'm like off the clock, you know. You know, Stephanie, my baby was a book eater. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, like she would actually eat the books. She would yeah. tear apart the books. So, you yeah, know, I got it, one of those. <laughs> you, just, you just make it work. It's just, it is what it is. 
Exactly. (laughs) So it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing when you're not doing publishing. You're doing parenting. Yeah, absolutely. No, and and that's where your balance is. So if you had you know a day by yourself, (laughs) and you said it was like your day, what would you do? Well, what? Oh, God, what would I do? That's like a mind blowing question. (laughs) I would probably want to be outside. I would probably do something physical, like take a yoga class or go for a run. Or if I had, I mean, like in a sort of a fantasy world where I could just transport myself somewhere, probably travel or, you know, go somewhere different just for fun. I would probably bring a good book. I feel like I don't get a lot of time anymore. Like at least right at this particular moment in my life, I don't get a whole lot of time to just read for pleasure. So it always feels like if I ever sort of achieve that point, it's like, wow, I'm really relaxing right now. Look at me taking a book out and reading it. (laughs) That's awesome. I have a plan this summer. I'm not telling you people when I'm going because, you know, you don't want you to follow me, but I'm going (laughs) to go backpacking with like just books. And I'm going to sit in the forest and read. I like that. Um, Stephanie, do you read in a different genre than you represent in your free time? Uh, Yeah, I really like to read. um, I read a lot of like popular nonfiction kind of stuff in my free time. And I also, yeah. And maybe I think because a lot of what I'm doing work wise is analyzing fiction. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes reading fiction in my free time is not the way to switch off my brain and just enjoy what I'm listening to or reading or I also listen to a lot of books on audio for pleasure rather than rather than reading them on the page probably for the same reason ingesting it in a slightly different way than the way that I've been doing all day long and I also do that because it's just super practical like I can start making dinner and or take a walk or take the dog out or you know whatever it is that I need to do and and kind of still enjoy what a book Um, but I also like crime and sort of murdery type (laughs) Nice. <laughs> it's always the nice, innocent-looking ones that love the crime murder books. Motherhood, nature, murder. <laughs> yeah, I've always loved that stuff. Even from the time I was a kid, though, I always, like, you know, Nancy Drew was, like, one of my early favorites. Actually, though, it was, like, the 80s remake called Nancy, Nancy Drew Files. It was supposed to be, like, a, you know, more modernized version of her anyway so i've read those all the time and oh, i love always this been kind of a mystery junkie so in an alternative universe with no publishing what mm-hmm. would you be um making a chef Ooh. i do a lot of cooking i like to cook a lot i used to cook a lot more like with a lot more focus where i was like I am going to learn how to make the French classics or what, you know, I don't know what I would just like, I would get really ambitious and I don't do that kind of thing so much anymore, but I've I've been cooking for pleasure for long enough that I, I don't really have to set myself big challenges anymore, nor do I have the time for it, but I do, I do cook a lot and I enjoy it. That's awesome. We've asked this 20 times now being episode 20 and you're the first cook oh yeah well, there you go and I love that it's kind of like you're, you're just like that's it's all about creation you know yeah creating yeah. creating definitely so tell us something that you've changed your mind about after being in the industry for all these years like you thought it was x but it's really y I mean I suppose before I worked in publishing I probably had you know a, it probably seemed like a much more sort of opaque industry, well, obviously, than it is to me. 
now and and maybe I would have imagined it as more of a stereotype of this kind of like intimidating high power you know people like you know like executives <laughs> that make money kind of a thing um and Lots now I yelling. realize that that's totally not the truth <laughs> about anyone you know that there are people that I get along with and that I'm friends with <laughs> we all think that 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 it is that you know the yeah. big glass house and so I, so back to the thing about being a murder mystery junkie. Um, another thing that I really loved when I was a kid was Murder, She Wrote. And I was putting together, now I can't remember why I came back to Murder, She Wrote recently. It was probably on Netflix and I was probably not feeling well one day and watched a bunch of them or something. But anyway, there was this opening, it was like the very first episode. They show her as this, you know, older lady in a pokey little, you know, seaside town in Maine. And she just happened happens to be writing as a hobby and she shows it to her nephew but just not for anything serious but the nephew shows it to his friend who happens to be an assistant or a publicity assistant or something at a big high-powered publishing house in New York and unbeknownst to Jessica this manuscript passes through hands until it reaches the tippy top executive publisher who flies in on his jet to tell her <laughs> I published this and then there's this really hilarious montage and she says oh Grady I didn't write that for serious I was just doing that for fun you know so anyway she gets dragged into publishing oh, her no. work you know kicking and screaming and then she they have this little montage where she keeps passing the local bookstore and first there's a sign that says local author J.B. Fletcher and then they put a little banner over it that says number 10 bestseller and then Aww. she passes by again it's number eight bestseller <laughs> number one bestseller and so and then she goes on the donahue show this is like it all takes place within like 30 seconds <laughs> oh, the donahue show that's awesome <laughs> and so anyway i i saw this clip and i thought well this is like the perfect example or the perfect manifestation of what people out there think publishing is like it's like there's tons of money involved that you could just accidentally drop your manuscript on the street and the right person could find it like they're just discovering you and the truth is really really far from that (laughs) i mean we all want an 80s montage for our life right yeah yeah. Well, it explains so much in such a short period of time. <laughs> but it also well, has it that, But I mean, don't you always want that fantasy of like things just coming together and there's like a nice beat behind it and it just all looks all glossy and beautiful. And yeah. I, I think people want all of that to be true to make all of the insanely hard work worth it. So I get that. Yeah. Well, I think, too, when you talk about creative work, um, there there is a sort of a fantasy out there, no matter what the creative work is. And, and, you know, I do it myself, right? I said that my other job would be I would be a chef. Well, I kind of imagine like the really nice, glamorous side of that, not like, I mean, would I really stand on my feet for 14 hours a day? I probably would feel dissatisfied with my job if that was what I had to do. But, you know, saying, oh, I'm going to whip up some nice meals and everybody's going to enjoy it and throw money at me for it. Well, that, I mean, that sounds nice, right? But I think anytime you're talking about a creative sort of profession, it's easy to imagine the end goal without seeing all of the work that takes place in between. And I think unless you really love the work that takes place in between, 
I don't think you actually can be that successful in a creative field because otherwise, like, I, I think the satisfaction has to come from all of that work. Like for a writer sitting down and writing every day, that has to be the thing that you enjoy. If you think that you're doing it because you're going to become the next J.D. Fletcher, I don't think it. I don't think it's a realistic way to approach creative work. I agree. And I think for, for me, it's the people I've met along the way. It doesn't matter. You know, like I met the most amazing people just like dabbling and playing with writing. You know, it's been amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And also as someone who's worked in a kitchen, it is not anything like the movies. And also you see those movies and they have all this time to think about what they're making and talk to people who are eating it. Oh my gosh, there is no time anywhere. I feel like everyone's fantasy of every creative profession completely forgets the fact that there just is no extra time. Right. Yeah. I guess you imagine that you just sort of, you have time to contemplate and remember and sense and that you put all that together and it some, somehow, you know, really affects people. But well, you I don't can know. still but. affect people if, if, even if you're moving at high speeds. It's just you have to consciously make that decision to be like, okay, here is a moment that is good where I've impacted someone's life in a good way. I'm going to take a moment and enjoy that before I move on to the 27 other emails waiting for me. <laughs> right. So speaking of, what's something that you wish writers knew about our side of the desk? Well, kind of going back to the hard work thing, it's like, you know, I know that there is so much involved in actually in writing and and sort of crafting something that you feel good about and that you want to show somebody, you want to show your agent, you want want to show an editor, etc., that you want to try and get published. And that whole process is, you know, so involved and consuming and everything. But then once you take that manuscript to your agent, say, for example... That feels like it's like the start of a whole new process of work that you may not have even imagined when you were thinking about writing. So I guess what I mean, for example, is that I'll have clients who I'll take their work and I'll submit it to a round of editors that the number of editors varies depending on what the manuscript is and and that sort of thing. But say, say I send it to five different editors at once. And then we might get five rejections, but I might see that every single one of those rejections said something constructive. And I get to the end of that round and I think, wow, this is really promising. Okay. I feel like we've got something here. <laughs> and that author might be feeling really um, dejected because they think, oh my God, no one wanted it. You know, five whole editors looked at it and, and didn't make an offer. To me, it's like the process of just putting it under people's faces is um, it's long and kind of unpredictable. But if you're getting sort of constructive feedback from people, it means they've read it and they thought about it, that there was something in it that was attractive enough for them to really try to put their finger on why they aren't going to make an offer or why they aren't going to show it to the rest of their team, you know, but it's a long process. Writing is a long process. The selling is a long process. And then once you get your contract, that again is like the beginning of the work all over again. Because oh my the gosh. editorial process is huge. It's sort of like the thing of, you know, a fairy tale ends with prince and princess or whatever getting married. And like, the end, they lived happily ever after. But or if die. you've been married. Marriage or death. <laughs> marriage or death. <laughs> In my marriage analogy, though, 
you know, when, when, when you actually marry someone, that's really the start of a very long period of time of being with somebody every single day. It's not, you don't just like hop on a horse and ride off, you know, my point being, you're starting the work. A lot of times you're starting the work when you get a publishing contract. True words. I've heard that over and over again. So I think that's something <laughs> everyone really should be taking in, you know, and that's like a really important piece they're going to take away from this you know, podcast and that question. So tell us about an aha moment when everything came together perfectly. Well, I would say, you know, for a long time, I've been doing different jobs in publishing. And I was sort of spinning my wheels about what was next and how I was going to make everything work. And I was pregnant. and I was this and I was that. And then all of a sudden, I was like, Oh, I could become an agent. It all makes sense. I've done sales before. I've done editorial work before. It all sort of fits whatever. I'm after in terms of my life. And then when I started doing it, it's like all the things that I really love about working in publishing are the things that I get to do. So I get to make really good, strong relationships with fantastic authors and illustrators who I'm excited to work with. And I get to make good relationships with editors and people in publishing companies. And I get to kind of pitch a little creative two cents in if I so you know think that I should or think that I can offer something in that way. So yeah, it's like the perfect blend of what I was trying to get out of my work. Well, no matter what, awesome. it's about the relationships, right? Yeah, definitely. Tell us about something that isn't nearly as scary or hopeless as writer's fear it is. Having your work critiqued by a professional or having or receiving criticism in some way, I think can be really, really terrifying. And I think that a lot of people take it as can take it as kind of an attack on them or or their abilities or something like that but actually when you receive a piece of criticism from someone it should make you excited i know that sounds like bizarre but if you can get an honest piece of criticism out of somebody that's the best way to try to make your work better and better and better and better and i think that when you know, when you're talking to a professional who is reading manuscripts all day, every day, is working with manuscripts all day, every day, that is your job to be able to analyze a piece of writing and to pull it apart and to identify little rough patches or to identify a pattern and say, oh, but wait, this one thing doesn't fit that pattern or, you know, all of those different kinds of things are the things that publishing professionals are doing. That's that's their expertise. And so I think that having your work critiqued, I'm thinking of sort of formal critiques in my mind when I say that, but it could come in different forms um, or having your work edited in some way is like this incredible opportunity to have somebody else kind of crack open what you've done and pull it apart and look for every little spot that they can have some insight into. I can imagine I've done a, a very tiny bit of writing, like not on a serious scale, I would say. And I've been part of like writers critique groups and stuff like that. And I remember the first time I did I, the first time I actually read something I had written out loud to a group. I was so nervous that but like my teeth started chattering and I was having this almost like physical adrenaline reaction to doing it. And then afterwards, I was like exhausted and had this big headache. And it was a really physical <laughs> experience. Yeah, it's actually. scary. I know how terrifying it is. And especially to open yourself up to that over and over and over and over again. But when you're opening yourself to hear constructive feedback, that to me is the way to really become a good writer is to be able to hear that kind of stuff 
and to be able to walk away and say, okay, I'm going to make a better manuscript out of this. So Stephanie, I'm wondering now when you see people that have that same kind of nervous reaction that you had, are you able to pull them back down to chill them out in those situations? I try to. A lot of times when, especially these sort of face-to-face critique meetings that you have, I've had a lot of people will sit down and they'll be really visibly nervous or they'll say, I'm really sorry, I'm really nervous. I've never done this before. And I mean, I always try to diffuse it as best as I can make Mm -hmm. some sort of (laughs) self-depreciating comment usually. Um, Like, it's okay. It's okay. We're just going to talk, you know, (laughs) I promise there's not anything more to it than that. I mean, hopefully, usually I just try to be as nice as possible, you know, and and I think that you can word your criticism in a way and and that's a a skill to to be able to critique someone's work in a way that doesn't feel like an attack, you know, it and I can't say that every single time it works. <laughs> Sometimes you think, oh, that person's not very happy with me. But, you know, you, you have you try. I try to make people feel as good as possible while also telling them the truth. I'm not going to lie to people in order to make them feel good. Because I don't think that that's what people are paying money to hear. Yeah, nobody wants that. Everyone really wants your honest opinion. But it's so hard because you want to help this person. You want to give them suggestions of how to do this better. And it it both amazes me and it completely does not surprise me at all because I've been on the other side of that. I've been in writing workshops where I've been like, yeah, well, you're dumb, you know, (laughs) like, (laughs) (laughs) but then it's also been the side where, you know, you send something out to 15 people and 10 of the 15 have the same criticism and you're like, hey, here's a pattern, maybe we could address this. And the writer is just like, no. And it's so hard Hard. because creativity, of course, has this almost magical element to it, right? Like you don't ever want to get into a headspace where you're like, okay, what I'm doing is bad and wrong and will never work. Obviously, you don't want to go there. But it's really, it seems like an incredibly slippery, steep slope between that and here are a few edits for you. Yeah, definitely. I think that that pure part of the creative process where you are not criticizing yourself or letting anyone else criticize you for that matter. I think that's kind of more in the early stages of the creative process. And then I think what's tricky about developing as a writer is that I think the people who do it really well are able to, to have that space where they're like, oh, yes, I'm free as a bird and I'm just going to mm-hmm. put things on paper. And then they have to like switch to being a different kind of thinker and then say, yes, but is this working? And even if it was so much fun to put those things on the page, or even if it pulled up some wonderful memory, or even if I was really feeling it, it might not actually serve the story. You may have written a scene that absolutely in no way, you know, that is wonderful on so many levels and uses perfect language, etc. But it doesn't advance the story. It doesn't need to be there. So it it has to go like there, but you, I think you have to have those two sides of yourself. Um, or even if you don't have those two sides of yourself, maybe you need to be able to seek out people who can provide that other side for you. And I, I think that I probably am somebody who has a lot more of that analytical side. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I haven't ever really taken writing to a serious level is because I, I can't let myself just sit there and write. You know, that's very hard for me because immediately I'm thinking, well, that doesn't work. <laughs> like, yes. I don't shut that. It's very hard for me to shut that side of my brain off. Whereas I, I do see people's writing where I think, oh, they haven't found that side of their brain, the, the critical side of their brain. They've shown me their first draft, basically. 
which is great. There's a first draft for a reason. But I knew a writer once who always called it the shitty first draft, that it was you accept right from the beginning that your first draft is going to be shitty. You're not going to, that isn't your book, but that's how you almost like make make notes about what your book is going to be kind of and then mm-hmm. you analyze it into shape <laughs> or you find someone to help you analyze it into shape which is what hopefully your agent and editor and, and critique groups are helping you do but you have to get something down like when you feel that rare feeling yeah. of i have this inspiration it's got to be down and you know this is a terrible analogy as a vegetarian and a fan of butterflies <laughs> but i think of it as When you've got those butterflies and you pin them down so you can frame them, maybe it'll flap around a little bit. Maybe it'll tear its wings a little bit, but you've got to get that down onto the page. Something. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's so hard to find that balance. And if there was a way that we could teach people how to have that balance between creating in a free space where you're not constantly criticizing yourself and then editing in a space where you're not constantly attached to things. Right. Well, I think that they have to be two very, very separate activities. Like, I don't know, maybe you even do them in different rooms of your house or drink different drinks while you're doing them. (laughs) I don't know what. Could Um, we have a cocktail list for each? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. For revision. (laughs) Wine for crafting. It's true. Like, I feel like it's like you have to train your brain as a writer to look for the heat of your story. Yeah. And you need to make sure that everything that you put on that page pushes the, the story forward. And if it it's just kind of like hovering there and it's good writing, it needs to go. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Or it needs Absolutely. to be revised. Absolutely. So tell us, I'm going to switch gears now. The superhero question. Yay! <laughs> if you were a superhero and you had superhero powers, what would they be? Oh, I don't know. Probably something pretty unimaginative like flying. I like the scenery. <laughs> That's totally okay. Okay, here's another question. Say... You had Google level funding and the encouragement to spend 20% of your time creating something. What would you make? I think a lot about trying to make sort of networks of publishing people, especially because I live in a city like Atlanta where, you know, we're far away from where the, the pulse of publishing is. But I know there are a lot of children's lit people around. So I think a lot about like the idea of trying to sort of create networks of people who are involved in children's literature in some way, like whether it is kind of hosting regular meetups or um, even just like a reading group where you kind of anticipate what this year's big influential books are going to be and you could get together and read them and talk about them or whatever. Like I, I really like the idea of trying to strengthen children's book community, children's book publishing community, let's say um, networks outside of the obvious places. I think sometimes it feels like you're at a disadvantage when you're in a smaller city or in a different region from the northeast or you know it feels like you're outside of the center of what's going on i like the idea of creating those kind of networks or strengthening those networks and i know obviously dbwi is a a really excellent resource for that sort of thing i guess my idea is more casual than that and more like kind of on a local level like i it was kind of interesting like ala was in atlanta this winter a couple of different publishing parties and that kind of thing and i ended up meeting people who are my neighbors or who i share social connections with like we have mutual friends or something like that and i had no idea that 
this person in neighborhood next to mine, for example, was an aspiring picture book writer. I, I met these two women who lived down the street from me and wrote this really gorgeous picture book called The King of the Birds about Flannery O'Connor's life. Hmm. What well, I guess one of them is the author and one of them is the illustrator. And they were sitting there signing books. And I was like, oh, I think we might be neighbors. And it turns out we are like we live on the same street. (laughs) So I just, you know, it was interesting to have that event here, because I feel like there just isn't this sort of established network to start bringing people together in a more um, in kind of a low key way, but in a way that allows for those connections to sort of flourish and to really create community that I imagine happens in New York. Well, it's one of those things you move to New York, and suddenly everyone understands you. But also, suddenly everyone understands you and they all want to hang out. And you still have only seven days each week. Stephanie, can you tell us a story about a time you were interacting with publishing people internationally? I've done a lot of, especially in my earlier years in the publishing industry when I worked for Walker Books in the UK, I used to do a lot of travel for work. Um, and basically, you know, my job was to get to know editors in foreign countries and find out what they wanted to publish and, and try to match them up with books that were on our list that I thought would be a fit. And so I worked with publishers in, let's see, Eastern Europe, Russia, Spain, Greece. But yeah, I had some amazing travel experiences. One time I went to Russia. Nobody nobody from my company had ever taken a business trip to Russia before. So I was like forging new territory. And we didn't really have any Russian business partners yet. There was one woman that I had been kind of corresponding with for a while. And when I got to Moscow, my suitcase didn't show up. And it was like 11 o'clock at night. And I had, I think I had a day or something before this book fair was happening in Moscow. And I was hoping to meet a bunch of publishers there and sort of find out who's who and all that kind of stuff. And so my suitcase didn't show up. And so I was wearing like jeans and a t-shirt and tennis shoes, basically. And it's I a smelled long like flight. An, yeah. And I smelled like an airplane. And I turned up in Russia. I went to the book fair in the I, at night I would like wash my t-shirt in the sink. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, I went to the book fair and I met up with this woman who I had been corresponding with. And she, when I told her what had happened in this like jokey little way, like, oh, haha, my suitcase didn't show up. She was like, what can I, can I bring you some clothes? Can I take you shopping? Can I like basically bend over backwards to make sure that I was comfortable for my trip? And like people do stuff like that for you. And it's amazing to be kind of, you know, that, that was probably one of the few trips where I really genuinely felt like I was lost in a foreign land kind of a thing. And And she was just incredible. And I had other experiences. I went to Serbia one time and the maybe like the assistant to the publisher or something. She came and picked me up from the airport. She took me out to lunch. She checked me into the hotel. There was some sort of a mix up at the hotel because it had been booked through some internet site and they didn't have the booking and blah, blah, blah. And she argued with the guy behind the desk on my behalf and was like, not going (laughs) to, not going to let him pull one over on me and all this kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, people do really nice stuff for you. I, I think just on the basis that you are kind of like minded people, it's like a, it's like an international, network of people who love books and people you know my my experiences my international experiences especially make me feel like people are 
sort of ultimately good, you know, and when you find yourself in these situations where you you don't really know how to be or how to navigate around or, or maybe you're just kind of lonely, like I would be there alone a lot, like, okay, well, here I am in Croatia by myself for the next four days, kind of thing. Which is so brave. Well, it's fun. I mean, it's fun. It's a kind of a skill to show up and, and figure it all out. But it's not just a skill because there's all these people in the world are very good. You know, they really are good. And they, they want to make you feel good. And then you just sit around and talk about books. It's like, oh, yeah, I get you. I understand you. <laughs> so last question. Number one tip for writers. What is it? I, I mean, it's one that I think gets cited a lot, but I'm going to say it again. And that is just to read everything, read everything that you aspire to write like. But I also think that it's not just about reading everything. It's about analyzing what you're reading and trying to sort of understand what the author is trying to do, where they are succeeding, where they are not succeeding, why they are not succeeding, why they are succeeding, and trying to replicate those results. I mean, obviously not not replicating their writing, but, you know, looking at the un- at what's underneath what you're reading and, and trying to analyze it. That, to me, I think is, is like the best thing that you can do for yourself. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Seriously. You're thank welcome. You. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. And if you like what you heard today, you can head on over to iTunes. You could like us and get us delivered right to your inbox. Or if you're feeling motivated, you could even give us a rating. That helps our analytics. And we love to hear from you. The more ratings, the more reviews, the more visible we are. And if you're interested, head on over to manuscriptacademy.com.